So we are in Romans chapter chapter six, Romans chapter six, and we are we are um, reading from from we can we can pick it up from verse ten. So we're overlapping a little bit. Romans chapter six, verse ten: For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed." You have been freed from sin, and you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to start reading also in chapter 7 of Romans from verse... uh, um, from verse 14, chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold in a bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing what the law that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now I want to read... Uh, in verse, in verse, in chapter 8, verse 12, chapter 8, verse 12 of Romans. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, remember, chapter 6 is, is, seems to tell us that we don't have to sin anymore. Chapter 7 tells us that if we try not to sin, we will. Chapter 8, the synopsis is, 
the only way you could win is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And and uh, um, let me just look at a couple of things in chapter 6, and then I'm going to speak more generally. So in chapter 6, we touched on this last week. It says in verse 10, But the life that he lives, he lives to God. He lives to God. We live our lives for God. If you live your life for yourself, you will never be content. Ever, ever, ever. If you live your lives, your life unto God, you will find contentment. Because when things come at you, you just say, this is not my life, this is not my car, this is not my house, this is not... Then, then you can give these things up. You live to God. That's what Jesus did in verse, in verse, uh, 10. In verse 11, he says, even so consider yourselves or reckon yourselves or choose to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he tells you also, he tells us, live to God in Christ Jesus. Consider this. Consider yourself as living your life to God in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in, in verse 13. He, he says, And do not go presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. He says, do not, do not. This is a commandment. This is not an indicative. It's an imperative. Do not. So now comes the command. Remember, with a command from God comes the power to do it. Heaven and earth will move to make it happen when there's a commandment. He commands us, now do not go on on presenting the members of your body to sin. He tells us, do not. And so now he specifically talks about the members of our body. Because so often when we commit acts of sin, we're using parts of our body. He says, don't do that anymore. It is a command. And then he, he, he does something similar. He says in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. With that command, sin shall not. When God says, shall, it has to happen. When God says, shall not, it can't happen. With the command is the power to do this. Uh, so he makes every avenue available to us. And then in verse 15 he says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? It's very... Similar to verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And there's a difference in tense here. And the difference in tense is in verse 15. It, it, it's as if, can we do it occasionally? And then he starts addressing this thing. And he says that, he says that in verse 17, verse 17 he says, But thanks be to God that through you we're... But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So as we become obedient to a teaching, it says, it says, uh, in verse 17, you became obedient from the heart. That means from deep within to a form of teaching to which you committed yourself to this teaching, and the result is that you overcame sin. So when we commit ourselves to a certain form of teaching, there can be great victory over sin. It does not mean that we become forever sinless. In fact, Paul teaches against that, but he says there can be great victory. And uh, uh, 
And then he, he talks about this in verse 23, for the wages of th- sin, that which we earn because of sin is death. I have seen so many precious lives destroyed because people will continue to walk in sin. I see this all the time, a lot with unbelievers. They come to college, 18 years old, they got the world by the tail, and, and handsome guys, and, and they, you know, everything going for them. Smart, handsome, all the girls love them and everything. And they graduate, they get a job, and within a decade, their lives are destroyed. Their lives are destroyed. Their marriages are destroyed. They got broken home, broken kids. They're not liking their job. And all these things happen. And you, and you look at it and you think, what happened? You know, here you're 30 years old and, and, and there's just this, all this destruction. I see it all the time. Sin can really destroy a life. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is destruction. If we walk in sin, continue to walk in it, it brings destruction. And then it says, the free gift of God is the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's not the wages. It's not wages that get us this. It's a free gift gets us this eternal life, and it's in Christ Jesus. But then when we go to chapter 7, Paul says, look, I see this war in my life. It is so hard for me to teach this. Hard for me, Jim Tour, to teach this passage, teach all this out of Romans. Because I just know my own life and the struggles that I have had in certain areas with sin. I just know this. So how can I sit up here? How can I, how can I display to you as if, you know, I'm going to teach this stuff and, ah, oh, great victory. <laughs> no, it's just hard for me to do this. I think it's hard for anyone to honestly teach this stuff. And it is so theological. Remember, this is, this is the most the deepest theology we have in the Bible is right here in the book of Romans. You can go to seminary and study every Greek word and its twists of meaning about this. That's not me. I don't know how to teach like that. I don't speak Greek. But I know about sin. I know about the struggle with sin in my own life. That I can talk about. And that is exactly where you're at. This class has been designed primarily for college students. I welcome everybody from little kids to old people. But it's designed for college students because I've worked in the university. I went to the university when I was 18. I was brand new. I was right after my 18th birthday, I went to the university. I've never left. I've never had a real job. I've been in the university my whole life. And, 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 uh, um, so I've been in the university a long time. And my struggle, my struggles are not unique. Paul here is saying that he sees this war in his life. He says in verse, in verse uh, uh, 19 of chapter 7, For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. I mean, so he shows this struggle going on in his own life. So when did Paul have this struggle? Well, at some point... At some point after salvation, the Holy Spirit fills him three days after he, he, he met Jesus on the road. And, and, and a man comes to pray for him. The Spirit fills him. Sometime after he started resorting to the flesh. And now, so Paul understands this stuff. Everybody goes through this. There is this struggle that comes upon the believer of, okay, I see all this theoretically. This power over sin. I, 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 don't have to be in bondage to sin, but then I look at my own life. 
And I wonder, am I really saved? Am I a believer? This is the struggle of believers. This is the testimony that you are a believer. Because unbelievers don't have this struggle. They don't have this struggle. Because they continue in sin and it doesn't affect them. It doesn't affect them in the sense that they don't have this struggle. So he says in verse 19 of chapter 6, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't even have this struggle, he said. You were free. Before you're a believer, you don't have this struggle. You become a believer and you go, Whoa, I am a stinking hypocrite. Because I, I tell people about Jesus and here I get poof, this amazing level of lust going through my mind. Like 24 hours a day. That's my struggle. When I got saved at the age of 18... God used the conviction of pornography to show me my sin. When I got saved, He delivered me from pornography. That never overcame my life ever again. Other people, they don't have that immediate deliverance. But I had a whole lot of other things He didn't deliver me immediately from. And you know what it was? It was no longer pornography, but it was all the pictures I had seen were still in my mind. I mean, I can recall pictures in magazines from when I was 14 years old. You haven't forgotten it yet? Nope. And the more I try to forget those, the more I remember them. It's amazing that way. Go ahead, try to forget a thought. Go ahead, try. Really work at it. It's hard. This was my struggle and remains so. So, my struggle... My struggle. I want to serve God. I was witnessing, sharing the Bible, teaching Bible studies all through my college life. I was teaching Bible studies in the chemistry building, teaching Bible studies, meeting people, leading them to the Lord. And as I'm speaking to a woman, I'm undressing her in my mind in a nanosecond. How can you do that? When you're sharing the gospel with her. I don't know. I don't know. But I know many of you understand exactly where I am. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the reality of life. And what I have found is that when I come clean about my life, in the sense that I reveal my life to you, this is what brings life to others. Because they look at my life and what God has done in the life of Jim Tour, and they go, wow, he's just like me. He's just like me. He has the same thoughts I have. He has the same struggles I have. And look what God's done through his life. Exactly that. The same struggles you have, I have. And maybe even more so. Because Paul said that he was the greatest of sinners. So I haven't under, uh, overcome Paul. I haven't. The Bible says that he was the greatest of sinners, so he is. I wasn't pulling believers out of their house and throwing them into prison. I never did that. 
I wasn't going into other cities tracking them down. I never did that. I wasn't there, you know, holding the cloak of a bunch of people who were stoning the first martyr, Stephen. That was Paul. So I haven't done that. But I've done plenty. I am not judging anybody. I'm not throwing stones at anybody because I know my own sin. I don't care what you've been into, whether it's adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography. I don't care what it is. I am not throwing a single stone at you. None. Because I have my own sin. Plenty of it. And there was this struggle all through my life with sin. And you say, okay, well, when he got married, that took care of it. I wish that were, had been true. I wish that had been true. I wish that when I got married, poof, now I have my wife. Struggles with lust are gone. I am single-minded on one woman. No, it didn't go away. All the images that I had in my mind from my childhood, from looking at all those pornographic magazines, they were still there. And they still afflicted me. And the ability to undress a woman in a nanosecond in my mind was still there. Didn't go away. So imagine the struggle in me wanting to please God and yet dealing with this? Can anybody identify with me? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've known somebody like that. Maybe wives say, oh, wow, you're just like my husband. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like your husband. This is what Paul is talking about. All this theology that's there. You want to get a Bible study in real hardcore theology? Go online. You can find a gazillion people to talk about this theoretically. That's not me. I felt like a hypocrite going through this. I felt like a hypocrite. How can I teach the Word of God with such hypocrisy in my own life? Talk about overcoming sin. Yes, you can be free from sin. Because I struggle with this thing. You think, okay, now at my age, at my age, it must be gone. Right? Wrong. Now, I have greater victory than I had in the past. Much greater victory. And a lot of that victory came when I was in my 40s. It just, it just... I wanted so badly to deal with this. So badly. I spent hundreds of hours studying the scriptures to try to take passages like this and make sense of them because every word in this book is true. What is in this book is true. But my life wasn't experiencing that. But what I urge you to do is please do not reduce the Word of God to your own personal experience. The Word of God, the promises of God are so much greater. And I started this, working on this series called Scriptural Sexual Ethics that I talked about in the past. Hundreds of hours of studying Scripture, of reading books, of studying great authors and what they had to say about this. And I mean great authors. 
Look, I mean, the thing about Christian books today is that you pick up Christian books today and they read as if they had been written in two weeks, because they were. There's very little depth of thought there in many Christian books. Everybody's an author now. And you wonder, where is the struggle that goes on? Where is the Paul saying that there's this war in me? So I read deep people like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and Pope John Paul II. If it bothers you that I mention that name, how about the name Carol Wojtyla? I'll go with that name. Because that's actually his real name, is Carol Wojtyla. <laughs> and it's a he, not a she. And uh, uh, But deep writings. He had the first eight years of a, his pontificate were, were on, on uh, uh, theology of the body. Deep, very deep. This man had been greatly influenced by his own admission by C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton. And uh, um, don't lower God's standard to your own personal experience because there is victory. Now, I am going to stick on the sexual realm of struggle because that was me. That is me. If you got struggles with money, I never had those particular struggles. Never had a great desire for lots of money. I never did. That's why I joke about it a lot. It has never been a struggle for me. I like to drive a simple car and have simple things, and I throw out a lot of stuff. I give a lot. I just don't. Money is not something. But when it comes to lust... It's like Paul says, you, you know, as for the law, I was blameless. Except coveting. <laughs> coveting got me, Paul said. Coveting got me. When I read about coveting, that got me. And, uh, but you know, the Bible is so clear on this. And the reason I focus in on physical lust is because in my experience in working with young people, since I was 18, I've worked with young people. Since I was a believer, I have worked with young people. The biggest struggle is in the area of lust. So when I focus in on my own problem, I hit on the problem of many other people. Now, there are some women that cannot understand the struggles that some men have with physical lust. They just can't get it. I understand. There's other women, they get it. All right. So if this doesn't get it, you just relate this to whatever your deepest struggle is. But you know, Jesus was the most merciful with the sexual sinner. In the Bible, you see him merciful with sinners. He didn't display a whole lot of kindness to the Pharisees, to people who thought they did not sin. And, and you know, the, the unforgivable sin is something very specific in the Bible. It's not something we can commit in the formal sense. When Jesus proclaimed the unforgivable sin, it was to deny the, the, the Messiahship of Jesus on the grounds of his being demon-possessed when they had seen him right in front of him. That was what the unforgivable sin was. It was to deny his Messiahship on the grounds of his being demon-possessed when he was standing right in front of them. That was a sin that they committed, the unpardonable sin. I think today the only unforgivable sin that we could have 
is that we refuse to acknowledge our sin. When we refuse to acknowledge that we sin, it is hard to get forgiveness. Jesus was so merciful with sexual sinners. In John chapter 4, he meets a woman by a well. He says she starts trying to talk theology with him. And Jesus didn't discuss theology. He said, go get your husband. She said, I have no husband. He said, you've spoken truly that you have no husband because you've had five husbands. And the one that you're now with is not your husband. She's like, gulp. (laughs) I perceive you are a prophet. He said, this you've spoken truly, that you have no husband. Because you've had five husbands, and the one that you're now with is not your husband. This you've spoken truly. Twice he said of her, you've spoken truly. So he took her lie, I have no husband, and he turned it into a truth. He said, you've spoken truly, you have no husband. Because you've had five five. Who can do that? Who is clever enough to take somebody's lie and turn it around into a truth so that he could embrace her in love? That's my Lord Jesus. Jesus does this sort of thing. He takes my failure. And he says, you got a good heart. Did you see what I did? It wasn't so bad. You got a good heart. Come unto me. That's what Jesus does. That's my Jesus. He took this woman's lie, turned it into a truth. Because he's so forgiving with the sexual sinner. The woman is caught in adultery. She should have been stoned. Jesus could not have thrown the first stone because the people who caught her would have thrown, would have had to throw the first stone. Without them throwing, and remember, they all left. Because Jesus said, whoever is without sin, and he means this sin. He didn't mean without any sin. And they all left. Starting with the older, because the older had probably committed adultery more often or something. Down to the younger. And because no one threw the first stone, no witness, Jesus, according to the law, could not throw the first stone. He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Women are not mentioned generally in genealogies. In the genealogy of Jesus, there are four women mentioned. Of the four women, all of them had some sort of sexual struggle. Tamar was guilty of incest and prostitution. Rahab had been a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabitess, which means she was a descendant of an incestual relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. And Bathsheba. Bathsheba is mentioned. And Bathsheba may well have been raped. Very hard to, you know, the king brings her to his home. She ends up sleeping with him. It is very hard for a woman in that culture to turn down the king when he makes his advance. And there are indications that she may well have been raped rather than committed adultery because God brings forth the Messiah through her in the sense that she may well not have been a, you know, a really... She was just bathing on her rooftop where she was supposed to bathe. But in any case, she's mentioned in the genealogies. All of them. Um, there's this overcoming feeling of lust at times. And what is lust? Lust has a particular, a particular definition. 
Lust is the disordered desire to take that which is not mine for my own gain. Lust is the disordered desire to take that which is not mine for my own gain. Because if this thought, if this thought, if this act, if this behavior does not truly image the love of God, it is not God's definition of love. And God's definition of love is always, is this in the other person's best interest? Is this action, is this thought in the other person's best interest? And if it's not, it is not God's definition of love. Is this thought, is this behavior, is this action in the other's best interest? And it, it is not. It is not God's definition of love. And lust is the disordered desire to take that which is not mine for my own gain. There are three ways that you could inde- that you can deal with lust. Three ways that I know of. And remember, this has come through hundreds of hours of study. Three ways that you can deal with lust. Three ways. Number one is that you can indulge. And I don't recommend that one. It leads to constant discontentment and disillusionment. disillusionment, And it will end, eventually destroy a marriage and your life if you indulge. That is how many people deal with lust. They just indulge. It will destroy your life. There's another way you could deal with it. You could try to suppress it. I will not lust. I will not lust. This is where most Christian education will lead us. Suppression. And it ends up taking a rocket engine and turning it on ourselves. As C.S. Lewis puts it, a man, a man could populate an entire city if given the opportunity. And he could. If a man has an eating disorder, he might eat one and a half times as much as a normal man. You know, if you eat 50% more calories than what your body is burning, you're going to gain a lot of weight. 50% more. But if a man were given the opportunity, multiple women, as many times a day as he would like, he could populate a city. Why would God give so much of a superabundance of something beyond what he calls us to do? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's not my thought. That's C.S. Lewis's thought. It is like there is this amazing rocket engine in a man. And if you try to suppress this, this rocket engine will explode in your face. And that is most, where most Christian education takes us. And what it does is it causes a fantasy life that's just exploding and makes us very judgmental of others, longing to do what others indulge in, but we resist and spit and curse, and our thought life goes crazy. That's what happens when we go into suppression mode. There is another way that you could deal with lust, and this is what I recommend, and that is redemption. Redemption. And that is what the Bible teaches, and that is where there is victory. And how do I know? 
because I experienced it. Because I experienced it. It was not until my 40s that I experienced it. Because my life was suppression. That I was going to suppress this was my life. Because that was where Christian education took me. I talked to pastors. That's where it took me, to suppression. Even to the point of pastoral counseling telling me to put ice on it physically. It's suppression. That's where Christian education can take you. I am telling you, my only relief was redemption. And the prayer goes something like this. When I look at the woman and my mind starts to go where it shouldn't, I say, I thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this woman. She has been made in the image of God. By the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, may I never use her as an object of my own lustful gain. And by that power, please untwist in me that which sin has twisted. And may I come to see my sexuality rightly. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this woman. She's been made in the image of God. Boom, it immediately recalls me to the fact that this is God's child. This is God's child. May I never use her as an object of my own lustful gain. Take that which is twisted in me and untwist it. And may I come to see my sexuality rightly. And you want to know something? Go figure. God answers prayer. God answers prayer. That is redemption. That is redemption. This works the same for women. Because many women struggle with the same thing of lust toward men. Many times you will find in a relationship the woman is the aggressor in the sexual sense. Putting in a, a man in a position that is very hard for him to be able to overcome. And the same prayer can work. I thank you, Lord, for this man. He's been made in the image of God. By the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, may I never use him or seduce him for an object of my own physical or emotional gain. And by that power, please untwist in me that which sin is twisted. And may I come to see my sexuality rightly. I'm telling you, what we are reading in the book of Romans is theology. Unless it gets turned into redemption in our lives, it doesn't do anything. And I could not sit up here and preach from this book. I couldn't without you knowing my struggles. I go into a lot more detail, a lot more detail in my scriptural sexual ethics teaching. It is on my website, jmtour.com, jmtour.com, scriptural sexual ethics. You go to the audio section, the personal topic section, audio files. 
and look up scriptural sexual ethics. It's six, only six parts, just six parts. Each part's like a half hour. You've got to start in part one and then go to part two and you work your way through it. I reveal a lot more about my life, my personal struggles, to the point that Shireen was embarrassed for me. She said, well, how can you do this? How can you put it up there? How can you put this out on the internet for people to see? I said, yeah, it is embarrassing. It is embarrassing. But because I see redemption, because I see people writing to me to say, that was a psychological blitzkrieg, and it changed my life. To see marriages, men and women writing to me, that that changed our marriage. That changed our marriage. So then to me, to me, it's worth it. So the, the, the six parts, let me see if I've got the six parts listed here. So, so there are six parts to this, and, and, uh, they are this. Number one, part one, um, Well, there's the introduction, which is part one, but then it goes into, redemption is not a sham, there is victory over lust. The word of God that we are learning is not a sham. It's not a bunch of theoretical mumbo-jumbo. It's not a sham. It's real. The second part is the true meaning of manhood. What does it mean to be a man? Where Jesus is totally shredded by the scourging, such that he wasn't even recognizable as a man, it says in Isaiah 52. Because of the shredding that he underwent during the scourging. And he comes out, and the proclamation is given by Pilate. He says, behold the man. Behold the man. Total self-donation, love for the other. Total self-donation, one for the other. That is the image of love. That is the true meaning of manhood. My total self-donation for my wife. That's what it means to be a man. Because we are never taught what it really means, what it means to be a man. Taught a Bible study to the Houston Astros. And, and, uh, um, and I said, how many of you really feel like a man? Not one of them raised their hand. And I said, I know exactly what you mean. We've never been taught what it means to be a man. The Bible teaches us, and it's imaged for us in Jesus Christ. Then the next section is the true meaning of womanhood, or woman, God's masterpiece. And Mary is our model. Lord, be it unto me, as you've spoken. Mary becomes our model. The next part is converting the Christian bedroom from hell on earth to heaven on earth. And what is the line for the unmarried? The hell on earth of what it can be in the Christian bedroom. And nobody knows this except the Christian couple. The hell on earth that the Christian bedroom can become. Overcoming that. You turn it from hell on earth to the most enjoyable experience. Night after night after night. I teach that. In that series. And the last thing, marriage is not a sham. Lowering the divorce rate from the current 52% among believers to the extraordinary number of less than 1%. Less than 1% of the couples that practice this particular thing get divorced. 
This is not my numbers. This has been studied by many groups. In fact, the University of California studied this. And they said, I think they came up with a number of like 6%. And, you know, they're, they're pretty liberal in their mindset. But even that is like a tenth of what the typical rate is of divorce. Go through that. And you will see that redemption is not a sham. That there is life in what the scriptures teach. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, for these young people, that you would give them victory. I pray, Lord, for these Christian couples, that you will bring victory. That you will change the hell on earth to heaven on earth. Father, that you would give a context for victory, for the sin that the believer struggles with. And for Father, for the unbeliever who has no ability to overcome sin because they live with the devil without the Holy Spirit, that this day their lives would be given to Jesus. Father, my Father, I give them to you. Save their souls, I pray. Save their souls for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.